Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. This is a little mood change now. We have a session called Bright Ideas in which three completely unrelated talks are given, lasting just over five minutes each. Uh, I will introduce them all individually. The first is uh, one of my best friends, which doesn't disqualify her uh, in intellectual terms. I first met her when she was working for the then American ambassador in, of course, London. But in the intervening decade and a half, she's become one of the world's preeminent foodists, real foodists, Nina Plank. She started the London Farmer's Market. She uh, is expert author. I would like to describe her. She would probably not want to be described like this, but my shorthand for Nina is always the sort of the Martha Stewart of how to really live healthily and eat healthily. Uh, but she's uh, as clean as a whistle. So, uh, without further ado, Nina Plank is going to give you her bright idea. Nina. Everyone in this room must have a shorthand for Julia, but she's my best friend in London. She doesn't disqualify her from her fabulous conferences, which stand alone. Um... I am going to tell you for a short three minutes what I've done in the last 15 years or so. But then I really want to talk about the, the market for food and, and ideas and living um, because everything has come together now. Gourmet people, locavore people, farmer people, food policy people, activists. Um, so that's fun. It is a, a whole load of rivers converging um, and I, I think it's interesting that just because we have access to all the same media and culture, um, culture streams and food streams, it doesn't necessarily follow that our tastes will also converge and become some big muddy brown. I think, I think it's quite possible, actually, that we can keep all the tastes omnivorous um, and not have them um, degenerate. Anyway, I found myself very homesick when living in London for local food. Um, I went trotting around to all the markets, the street markets in London, looking for fresh English strawberries, asparagus, heirloom apple varieties, and I found antiques and spices and T-shirts and batteries and um, at the old street markets, a lot of imported food, uh, Granny Smith's from New Zealand and... Uh, peppers from greenhouses, Dutch greenhouses. But I didn't find what I wanted, which is the food I grew up on. My parents are vegetable farmers in Virginia, and they were one of the pioneers of early ecological farming and also of farmer's markets. They made their entire living selling at farmer's markets from May to November um, for many years uh, with no off-farm income, with no sales to chefs, with no other career whatsoever they put uh, two children through expensive four-year colleges on tomato money, earned a dollar at a time. And, and that's how I grew up, and we had um, in, in every way superior produce at home, and we also had a cow and chickens and a couple of horses next door to ride bareback. So I had, um, in many ways, an idyllic farm life, although we worked very hard and always in the, at, the, 
at the wrong time. So Friday night football nights were market loading and Sundays were markets and Mondays were our days off. And in January, they took us out of school to drive across country and sleep in our van. And all summer we worked and there were never holidays um, when other people had them. Um, but but what, what I wanted most of all was just to find local food and I couldn't. So I set about calling um, the market uh, trading authorities in the, the, the then 33 boroughs of London. And although London has a mayor now, um, it, it still is fairly decentralized by by international standards. Um, then, of course, um, there really were 33 little centers of power. And although the, the street markets were collapsing under the weight of uh, suburban mark, uh, suburbanization, the car, um, the decline of central shopping, big Sainsbury's, and even, even little local efforts like, like Tesco Metro's. And although they didn't have anything anybody wanted and the, and the demographic was not really alive and kicking um, after a few calls, I was flatly rejected by every street market I tried, so I gave up looking there. I found a private site in Islington where I lived um, uh, with the wonderfully named Mr. Old School, uh, who was indeed old school, uh, and his son, Mr. Old School, is now in charge. And for 400 pounds a month, uh, he offered to rent me his pitch in Camden Passage on a Sunday when he didn't have an antique market. I then set about finding farmers like my parents who sold food that I knew people wanted and would love, and I started there naively with the National Farmers Union, and um, when uh, I did finally get a rather cold woman on the phone, she said our members wouldn't be interested and put down the phone. Um, the National Farmers Union, I happy note since, has become a, a major sponsor of farmers markets all over, all over Britain. And there were, um, when I started this effort, no farmers markets in the UK whatsoever. Um, and I opened the first farmers market in London in 1999. Um, shortly after, uh, um, others had opened the first farmers market in England in Bath, just to be clear. Um, but also on the same day that um, Prince Charles opened his farmers market in Poundbury. So uh, journalists being what they are, which is um, somewhat uh, locally chauvinistic and, and a little bit lazy, the fact that we'd opened in London for the first time um, got lots and lots of attention compared with the bath opening. Um, so all the broadsheets were there. Um, the BBC was there. Uh, two, not one, but two um, uh, cabinet ministers attended the opening. <laughs> um, the culture minister... Uh, and uh, uh, the agriculture minister rang the opening bell. Prince of Wales sent a letter of congratulations, which we read out loud, and the customers were like the proverbial locust. There's a, there's a picture of me holding the last carrot. And it rained. So we, we, we moved quickly on, and now we have 18 farmers markets in London. We grew quickly. We opened two more in three months, um, and soon I had a thriving little business, and we're one of the only ones who do it for profit. Many farmers markets um, struggle along on charities and, and volunteer fatigue, um, and I admire them for their efforts, but I do think there's a, there's a simpler way to do it, and that's to charge the farmers a price that makes it worth their coming to the market and then run them professionally. Um, I, I then had to overcome a, a, a setback, which is that I had been, for some time, having been raised on real food, um, a vegan and a vegetarian and a low-fatter and a low-cholesterol person, and, 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 and I tried every diet, non-fat, non-saturated fat, whole grains. 
Um, and I looked around at these lovely markets and I saw that the farmers were producing these beautiful chickens and roll milk cheeses and butters and hams and, and that all our customers were eating them and they seemed so healthy and intelligent and lively and, and more to the point, happy. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I realized then that you, in, in the UK we had not yet lost smallholders, we had not yet lost the habit of shopping with smallholders or butchers or fishmongers or buying fresh meat on a Sunday. I had one farmer sell frozen meat on one Sunday at one of all our markets in all these years since 1999 and he went straight home and came back with fresh arrangements. Um, whereas in the States, uh, where I grew up at farmers markets, they were still largely for fruit and veg, the plant lady, the bread man, um, so uh, uh, Americans um, were already terrified of these traditional foods, but um, uh, English people, and, and of course the same thing happened shortly after in Ireland, Scotland, and Wales, were not yet afraid these foods would give them a heart attack. So I, I started to eat these foods, and I became an omnivore again, and the result was my book, Real Food, What to Eat and Why, in which I defend the traditional foods, the foods that your grandmother and great-grandmother probably ate. Um, most famously, butter, lard, raw milk. So I, I, in addition to being the local foods lady, then became the lady who, as everyone who reads the New York Times now knows, feeds her babies raw milk. <laughs> um, and then um, I, I wrote a book called Real Food for Mother and Baby, which, which talks about how, how to get pregnant. Um, it's for mother, father, and child from zero to two. Um, and... I discovered there that the conventional wisdom was so often wrong. Uh, we're meant to give meat and eggs and milk to young human omnivores and not rice cereal. Um, we're meant to eat protein to prevent preeclampsia and not drink loads of water and avoid salt. Um, and along the way, the surprising thing is that I found that um, I knew even while I was overturning things that I thought I knew and other people thought they knew, um, I didn't really know my readers or eaters or farmers as well as I thought, and perhaps you don't either, because you might imagine that the local foodists are, are blue staters, but they're not. Many of them are Christian homesteaders. Many of them are stay-at-home mothers. Many of them have many, many children. Many of them are in the home birth movement. I don't mean that they have... Uh, can prove they were born in this country. I mean that all their children were born at home. Uh, and I mean many children. Um, I know a farmer who's just had his 11th child at home. He was late coming home from the market and missed it. Um, so the, the real food and local food and traditional food and making your own food and growing your own food um, are not red state and blue state issues. Um, people might think that I'm against processed food or you might think that real foodists are, but in fact we're fully in favor of processed food because some of the greatest foods in the history of humankind are processed. They are wine, beer, honey, uh, cheese, which has been called immortal milk, pickles, kimchi, sauerkraut, bread. What we want in a processed food is a food that has been improved by processing for nutrition and flavor and not the opposite. Um, Food science, um, uh, much dismissed, um, but I think it's, it's time um, for the scientists who know what happens in the kitchen to meet the industrial food producers, to meet the slow food producers. Uh, a lot of what we believe in the kitchen, and I'm also a home cook, and I wrote the Farmer's Market Cookbook, and my next book is the Real Food Cookbook. Many home cooks believe that by searing the meat, you seal in the juices, when many, many studies have proved that that's sentimental garbage. 
Um, uh, we need small food producers to use better science. So if you're making raw milk cheeses, you ought to be willing to subject your cheese to, to your milk to white blood cell counts. I think that um, it's it's time for us to bring food for health, food for life, food for pleasure, food for safety, uh, food for a beautiful ecology altogether. Um, and I think that will be easily done because happily we can all meet at the table. Um, and uh, that is what we'll do later. Thank you. Well, Nina has given us a great segue into the next bright idea because she talked about food and pleasure. And the next thing we're going to hear about is a different kind of pleasure, female desire, from uh, Victoria Flirter and Kate Rose, who are documentary filmmakers. We're about to see a teaser from their That's What She Said documentary series. I'm hoping that the technology works at this point. Um, if it doesn't, you'll see me making frantic hand signals. And assuming it does, immediately after the footage, uh, Victoria and Kate will come and talk to you uh, in a bit more detail about what they filmed. So it, it doesn't have to be like a guy's butt. Je suis un cœur d'artichaut. It means I'm a heart of artichoke. Um, it's it's much more like something like I can be very very quickly troubled in desire. Something out there that I'm going to do that's going to be great and that just fills me up with this wonderful emotion and that's what I think is desire, just that that wanting something that's greater than anything you know. It's because of passion, you know, it's, it has to be passion, otherwise, you know, why we are having sex anyway? You know, it has to be, you know, I have to feel when the guy wants me, you know, it has to pull my hair and when I, oh, I have to scratch and hold, like, ah, oh, bite. Boring sex just goes on forever and you feel like, it's like, it's like a, uh, a ride that you can't get off. How do you want to see yourself and how do you want to conduct your life? I am in this constant state of longing for <laughs> home furnishings. Your neurotransmitters start going off, making your body think that you actually need something you don't. That's so funny, I was, I was going to get a Persian cat two weeks ago, but I think it's because I was really hungover. You know, I'm like, Mom, I really like Kenny, I want to give him a blowjob. And she's like, Julie, what? You want to get from a what? You're like, yeah, I look good, and yes, I want to do disgusting things with you, like, I want to suck on your ball sack and all kinds of things. I find certain kinds of violence particularly arousing. Um, I, I cannot watch Crank without, and, it, and it's a terrible movie and it's wonderful, I can't watch Crank without wanting to screw someone afterwards. I do desire to have babies. I come home and they're like together and they're kissing and they're having this romantic dinner. <laughs> I feel so alone. I think through sex you kind of rediscover life. <laughs> Hello. 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 So just a quick explanation about what you saw. Um, Victoria and I have been interviewing women about desire in every sense of the word. Um, these have been friends, friends of friends, people we've met, and surprisingly people that have heard about the project and contacted us and wanted to come talk. 
Um, the, the way that the series is going to work is it's going to be a web series, and each episode we're going to pair the interviews with a scripted fictional short film. Thanks, Kate. Um, so uh, I just wanted to tell a little story. Uh, some of the most panic-inducing moments of my adult life have been in job interviews when they've asked the question, what is your passion? Uh, when they ask, what is your passion, my life passes before my eyes because I have no idea what the answer is, and I imagine that my life is going to be a total failure and filled with ambivalence and, and shame. And um, at a certain point, I found myself in a, in a job interview. I was interviewing for Vogue magazine. I was, I was sitting across from Anna Winter, and she said, what are you passionate about? Uh, and I knew what the correct answer was. I knew I was supposed to say accessories. Um, but I, I, I panicked again, and, I, and in my state of panic, I had a kind of an epiphany. And um, the epiphany was this. Oh, my God. I'm, I'm interested in sex. I mean, I know everybody's interested in sex, but I'm, like, really interested in it. I mean, I think it's a great subject. It's, it's strange. It's funny. It's narrative. It's great. So I, I said to Anna, I said, well, passion is my passion. Um, and I did not get that job, but I did have a subject. And um, my subject, um, well, sort of turned into this. Uh, the, the idea for this project came about because I, knew, I know so many funny women. And the subject that they're funniest on is sex. Uh, we started interviewing women four hours a day in our studio. We thought that, you know, one out of ten would be Sarah Silverman. But it turned out that every single person is brilliant on this subject because it's the subject that they care the most about, and it's the subject about which they have the most to say. Um, so, you know, there have been a lot of sex surveys. This project is not about sex in a, a, a clinical way or in a research way or in a porno way. Um, it's, it's not really even about sex sex. It's about how women talk about sex. Uh, so uh, a very nice person introduced me to Kate, and we've been rolling on the floor ever since. Um, uh, I, I like talking about sex, too, but I'm not as, as comfortable about it as Victoria is sometimes, so that's what's uh, been part of this process, and it's been quite fascinating to me. And it's also been amazing how it's evolved um, into the idea of desire in and, and a larger sense and how, how women navigate uh, their own desires and how they navigate communicating about it. Um, I think that I should be able to have a conversation about my personal ambitions and my desire to have babies and to eat good food and travel and also have a good sex life in the same way. And, um, and I feel so strongly about this that I quit my day job to pursue this project. And, um, and it's kind of opened a, a door of communication for me already because when you quit your day job, you have to tell your parents why. And, um, which means that I had to have a conversation with my father and tell him that I am currently developing a short film um, about the history of the blowjob. And, um, to which he said, that sounds fascinating. And, uh, and then I immediately said, let's change the subject. So there are barriers to this communication. But, um, like, yeah, sitting, sitting uh, in a very small, intimate studio with Victoria, talking with these fascinating women uh, four days a week, um, watching them 
ask themselves honest questions about what they want. And some of them have said, you know, no one's ever really asked me that or I've never really thought about that. And the fact that they're open to doing this in an open and on, in a, 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 an honest way um, on camera on top of that is, is quite riveting and it, it doesn't get old. Um, so. Yeah, and I wish we had more time because there's been so many um, sub there's so many of the subjects that have come up in this conference re uh, relate directly to this project: uh, storytelling, uh, self-publishing, privacy. All of these things are uh, fascinating, and it has been an incredible experiment. Experiment. Um, we have we put up a, a YouTube channel just for this conference. If you wanted to check out some of the full interviews. Um, uh, I think That's what she said, vids, no spaces. Um, so anyway, Channel. thank you so much, and um, that's it. That's all. Well, luckily for John Kamen, he's one of the most creative people on the planet, so he can just about follow that. Uh, <laughs> quite what manner, I don't know. Maybe he'll raise you ten and talk about male desire because, in fact, his talk is entitled What Comes Around Goes Around. So, you know, it could be related. Um, John is the chairman and CEO of Radical Media. And for those people that know about interactive design and creative industries and all this, he's won more pencils and awards of the creative kind than you can shake a stick at. And really, by rights, he ought to be at Cannes in the moment, but luckily he's with us. So for the last few minutes before the tea break, which will then be followed by our journalistic session, which will then be followed by the lovely party hosted by Gorka for us, I give you John Kamen. And amongst all those accolades, somewhere in the credits of Crank we were I think, produced in association with Radical Media. So when I hear crank, can actually get somebody that excited. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's always hard to decide what it is when you have five minutes or so to talk, what, what it is you're going to talk about when you do as many things as we do at Radical. And we're known for a lot of different things. Uh, we produce films, we produce television shows, we produce advertising, and we're also very involved in the digital realm. But uh, when Janet Goldsmith invited me to this conference and challenged me as to the sort of subject being individuality in a mass age, what could we possibly talk about and how can we find a voice, uh, it made me think of a, a most recent project that we just launched last week that I thought would be incredibly appropriate. But it actually, what goes around comes around, it actually starts six years ago. I got a call from um, a, uh, a rock star guy named Bono who um, called, and let's see if technology works here. He called because he and a group of his friends were starting a campaign. They called it the One Campaign. And the campaign was meant to uh, really become an advocacy group. It wasn't uh, there to raise any kind of money. So let's see if this works. Yeah, it does. I mean, like that. So uh, they had a name. They didn't have a logo. They didn't really have an idea of what they were going to do. But uh, Bono actually had the script for a commercial. 
The only problem was that he writes really great lyrics. He doesn't necessarily write great scripts for commercials. And uh, he called me, he sent me uh, to, to date it. He actually sent a fax of, here are the, here's the copy for the commercial. And I said, well, you know, we'd love to help you, but let's see if we can find somebody who could do a better job writing it. And uh, lo and behold, that night, I bumped into a copywriter and a friend who has written things like this before and I knew could do a perfect job of uh, capturing the essence of what we were trying to do with the one campaign. And the idea was quite simple. Um, instead of asking for one celebrity to become the Sally Fields for this movement, since Bono has a lot of friends, we would turn to all of those friends and ask them to give us one word for the one campaign. Now, a few of them gave us a few more, a few more than just one word, but, but the point being that we could, that was not a big ask. And it was at a time, six years ago, that by asking that, you could get and almost probably produce a New Yorker cartoon as to who showed up in the studios, both in New York and Los Angeles, to give us one word for the one campaign. So I'll play something that we produced five years ago that kicked off the campaign. And by the way, it initiated it very successfully. We got two billion free media impressions. So one by one, they step forward. A nurse, a teacher, a homemaker. And lives are saved. But the problem is enormous. Every three seconds, one person dies. Another three seconds. One more. The situation is so desperate in parts of Africa, Asia, even America, that aid groups just as they did for the tsunami, are uniting as one. Acting as one. We can beat extreme poverty, starvation, AIDS. But we need your help. One more person. Letter. Voice. Will mean the difference between life and death. For millions of people. Please join us. By working together. Americans have an unprecedented opportunity. We can make history. We can start to make poverty history. One. By one. By one. Please visit one at this address. We're not asking for your money. We're asking for your voice. So key word, we're not asking for your money. We're asking for your voice. Um, I think, you know, it, it really is interesting because when you're starting a, an organization like this and you're not out to raise money and it's mostly funded by the folks like the uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, you find that uh, you know getting a voice out there is is actually uh, a difficult thing in, a, in an age of mass media. You can buy time, or you can hope that people will give you time, but getting people to actually give you their voice to get them to share your opinion is something that's quite difficult. Uh, the original uh, goal for the one campaign was to basically lobby governments to stay on top of their various. Uh, efforts to eliminate poverty. Uh, now, uh, the words, you know, make poverty history, uh, even Bono, five years later, has learned that it's quite a difficult thing to do. Um, you can alleviate it. You can, you can try to eliminate certain aspects of it, but you're not going to make it history. And it's, he's five years wiser. He came into the office about eight months ago, and he said, you know, John, 
Nothing was more effective than that original campaign that we did. All these other attempts of things that we've done never have really, we've gotten our voice out there and one has actually been quite effective as an advocacy group. It represents multiple organizations. It stayed on top of several governments and it really accomplished a lot, but it didn't, it didn't get people to really participate. They get an email, they get a nice a uh, letter once in a while, you're supposed to send out uh, an email to somebody else, but according to him, it's not enough. He, he uh, coined the phrase, or maybe he didn't coin it, but we'll credit him. He started saying, you know, I've, we've got a lot of slacktivists. We don't have enough activists. We want more people to know and understand the facts, because one thing that we know for sure is education is actually one of the best things to beat poverty. If people understand what the issues are, they can actually voice their opinion about the issues. And when you listen to somebody like Bono speak about the issues, it's remarkable how much knowledge he has that he's collected along the way. Now it started famously with Jeffrey Sachs and the, the uh, his his uh, his teachings at, at at Columbia, which was one of uh, Bono's first uh, mentors. But since then, he's picked up so much more and he's learned so much more. Um, and the group at one and all of the people who are working in their organization seem to know this information by the back of their hands. They can rattle off all sorts of statistics, but how is the public supposed to be able to do that? And so he challenged us at Radical to come up with something new. And we put our heads together and we presented to him a strategy for one 2.0. Five plus years later, how are we going to take this idea in a mass age with all the new technology? And it certainly wasn't going to be a commercial at that point. Even though I still very much believe in commercials for mass media, it's very hard to get the kind of exposure that we might have gotten back then for a commercial. So we were looking for a way to do it and we realized that in many ways if you think of the power of mobile technology and the fact that this is in most people's hands or pockets, maybe we could come up with something that would actually change the game through this platform and create an opportunity for people to have a voice. And we came up with a strategy and we presented all sorts of ideas, including one that involved creating one app that might change the world or a one app that could change the world. And uh, he was very excited by it. He has a board of a few people that we might recognize many of their names. And um, they needed to present the idea to the board. So we put together a little film that I'll share with you now that described in 90 seconds what you could do uh, with the one app.
So that was eight months ago, or actually beginning of the year that we presented it. If we could bring the lights back up. And um, naturally, the board didn't have any objections. It seemed like a really great idea because suddenly you could create a two-way conversation with the constituents and the members of one. You could no longer have to rely on just email, but amazingly, you could even text them and they could text you back and they could do all sorts of uh, really powerful things. So six months ago, they all got excited about it. They said, what could you do? And I said, well, we're, we're going to build it. And last week, we launched the one app uh, that might change the world. Uh, but it already did, because on my way over here, I got a text from one that the White House approved the first initiative that they lobbied them for, which was to ensure that, uh, that the children and 250 million children would uh, get a commitment from the U.S. government to guarantee immunization for certain diseases. And in fact, from this app, you can call the White House and you can fa thank the president. I doubt you'll get him, but you'll get a machine. <laughs> and it'll give you a script to say, my name is so-and-so, and I'd like to thank the president for his pledge of over 400 million, uh, $450 million uh, towards the next three years for the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunizations. It's a very powerful tool. Last week we saw that we were on the top list of callers to the White House. And for this petition and another petition, we had over 25,000 people respond. And they've had an increase of over 100,000 people joining one and 30,000 or so who've downloaded the app. So it's, it's a way to find a new means for a voice. There are films on the app that can explain to you some of the successes that have happened in the program. There are uh, all the facts and the issues so that you can be as eloquent in describing and being able to be intelligent about it. You can um, reserve your place at a, uh, at a meeting or uh, perhaps be informed about a gathering. And again, uh, this two-way conversation goes well beyond just your uh, email, but now suddenly is in your pocket and an ability to empower you to do something on your phone. Thank you.